Please open them up. We're ready for uh, 1 Kings chapter 20. So we're going to finish 1 Kings tonight, 2021 and 22. And then I think we're going to start 2 Kings the way we did 1 Kings. I don't know if you guys remember, but we did 1 Kings kind of at 30,000 feet. And so we went through, and then as we, we got into the life of Elijah towards the end, we, we really almost went slowed down to chapter by chapter because there was so much stuff to cover in the life of Elijah. But if I'm being honest, um, First and Second Kings is not the easiest book to teach. First and Second Kings is um, part of the, the books in the Bible that fall into the category of history. And so I don't know how well you guys like history class in school, but, but this is history. Now, the, 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 the important thing for us is that, yes, it is the history of, um, of Israel, but it's still the word of God. And so there, there's never a, a downtime or a bad time or a bad place in any of the scripture that God can't use to change your heart and life. You know, I've heard testimony after testimony. One of the kids that um, was a senior in high school when we were in JS, military family. Many of the, many of the families we had in our school were, were military families. And so this young man had come in from somewhere, um, Okinawa, I think, before they got there. And his mom and dad loved Jesus. They served in our church. And this kid was just in full-out rebellion. And, and he was blatant about it. And he wanted to be over the top that he didn't want nothing to do with God. And, and, and he was in our school and in church. And, um, and, and so today, he's a pastor, with the, which is always the case, right? He's not always the case. But oftentimes, he's a pastor um, with the Southern Baptist um, denomination. And he wrote us a letter and he thanked us because even though on the outside, you know, we, he didn't, we didn't know we were making a difference in his life. He, and he said in his letter that on a Wednesday night, he was in church and Pastor Gerald was teaching through the book of Leviticus and he got saved. And I'm like, dude, your life is doomed for legalism if you get saved in the book of Leviticus. Like, no, just teasing. But he does tend to be a little <laughs> uh, on, the, on the serious side. But um, but an amazing story. But again, there wasn't it was Leviticus and it's like, you know, but he and then uh, at the last uh, pastor's conference I was at, it was funny because that story always resonates with me and this young man and his story. And then um, Pat Lazovich was telling the story and, and they were in Ezekiel. They were doing the same thing we're doing tonight. They were going through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And, and again, just admittedly, there's places in the Old Testament where it's, it's a little bit of work to get through it. And it's not the most, you know, exciting and, and, and you know, action-packed stuff because we're covering history. So, so he said they were in a section in Ezekiel, and literally they were pretty much just reading the chapters to get through it. And, and they did an altar call at the end, and several people came up and asked Jesus in their heart, just reading through pages of Leviticus. And again, it's, you know, it's, it is the Word of God, and it's, it's in the power of the Word of God. I think there's some cool stuff. I'm super excited to uh, get into Elisha's life. We, we're just going to finish Elijah. Elijah's going to make a little blurb here in this. And then Elijah is going to kind of fade, but we'll see him again in early Second Kings. And if you guys remember the story, we said the two prophets that are very similar, Elijah and Elisha, right? And sometimes we get them confused, even myself when I'm preaching and I'm going fast. If I'm telling a story, sometimes I, in my mind I'm, I'm trying to tell a story, but I'm, I can't remember if it was Elijah or Elisha. And, and the way we remember which one came first, do you guys remember how we do that? Elijah is a J, Elisha is an S, and so J comes before S in the alphabet, Elijah comes before Elisha. And, and so that's the way I remember them. Now, I, I can't pronounce it really the right way, but in Hebrew, 
the name Elijah and Elisha are not pronounced the same. Um, they, they actually come out very differently when you, when you pronounce them in Hebrew. In the English, it's the same. Um, a lot of stuff is that way. When I was in, uh, I was in the airport last, last trip to Israel, and I was speaking to this Hebrew girl that was traveling, and um, she was asking me about our trip to Israel, and I told her the first night that we're staying in Tiberias. And so do you guys know what Tiberias is? Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee. Um, the city where the Sea of Galilee sits is called Tiberias. And so I was telling her, we're, we're staying in Tiberias. And she was like, where? Where? And I was like, why can't she figure it out? It's like the Sea of Galilee. Like, you know. And I said, Tiberias, Tiberias. And so since she says in Hebrew to somebody else that was there, a young man that was there with us as well, and, and, um, and he said, uh, Tiberia. And she said, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So this our English word that we pronounce Tiberius in Hebrew they pronounce it Tiberia which is very different right well she couldn't figure out Tiberius was Tiber- Tiberia so you you have that sometimes so all right so we're going to get into um, Ahab and and Jezebel a little bit tonight do you guys remember Ahab good king or bad king what was his wife's name Jezebel one of the most wicked women in all the Bible. Jesus is going to call out a church in Revelation. We're going to see tonight under her name as a Jezebel spirit. Okay, Ahab, king of the north or king of the south? King of the north. He was of the northern ten tribes of Israel. He reigned actually for quite a quite a long time as a king of Israel with his wicked wife Elijah. Elijah came and he had the he had the um, where we just came through or we just finished in 17, 18, and 19 in First Kings. Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal and his wife's prophets, 450 of them, on Mount Carmel, beautiful place there in Israel, in in the Armageddon Valley, the place of Megiddo. When you're there on Mount Carmel, um, for those of you that are going to Israel, it's one of the first stops we make on the first day. So um, the first day we we start at the at the Mediterranean Sea in in Tel Aviv. And then we follow Peter's journey from Joppa on up the coast, and we end up, um, and on the way, we stop at um, Mount Carmel. And, and, in, and in Mount Carmel, you're looking at the Valley of Armageddon. And, and Napoleon was there in the Valley of Armageddon um, in Megiddo in Israel, and he said that, that there, there's no place in the world that sets up better for a war than this place. And, and so we, you can just see, because the Battle of Armageddon is going to happen there, and you'll just see when you're there in the, in the um, Jezreel Valley the, the way this sets up. Beautiful place there. So Elijah is there on Mount Carmel, and he challenges um, the prophets of Baal. They have this duel that the God, um, the true God will answer by fire, and Elijah says the famous words basically to, to, to um, ring the words of, of Joshua, Choose this day whom you will serve. And Elijah says, how long will you, that's what Joshua said, Elijah says, how long will you falter between two gods? If the Lord is God, then serve him, and if Baal is God, then serve him. And it just is common sense. And, and, and we would think we could apply that same common sense to our lives, right? If the Lord is God, then serve him. If the Bible is true, then, then serve him. You know, Carl told me in the, in the lobby today as we were chatting, you know, it's the same kind of common sense idea, right? You would think it's like the whole bomb under your chair analogy. If you really believe there was a bomb under your chair that was going to go off, there would be some action. You would get up and run. You would move. You wouldn't sit on top of the bomb and blow up. If you believe the word of God is true, if you know Jesus died on a cross and rose again, and you're going to go meet him someday, those things should affect how we live. They should motivate us. They should, they should be some action in our life that, that we believe in God. And now we get to um, 
um, this story. And so that's what Elijah tells them. He kills the prophets of Baal. And then remember what happened to Elijah. He wasn't afraid of Ahab or the prophets of Baal or this duel. And tell what happened. Until Jezebel got mad. This one wicked woman scared Elijah. And the Bible says one knee smote the other. And he ran like Forrest Gump from Mount Carmel, one side of the country, completely to the other side of the country. He hid in a cave, and, and he asked God to take his life because he couldn't handle it anymore. One woman that he ran from. <laughs> that brings us to um, where we are tonight in chapter 20, and it says, Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together, 32 kings with him, and the horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. So, um, when it says Syria here, what is that talking about in modern day? It's talking about modern day Syria. Okay, He was the king of Damascus. Now, 32 kings. You're like, oh, hold on. How many countries or continents are there where you have these kings? The, the term king in the Bible would be um, more equivalent to our term today, like mayor maybe, governor. You have lots of mayors. Tooele City has a mayor. Grantsville has a mayor. Every city has kind of would be like the mayor. So when you see this term kings, even in um, Genesis, where we're going to see with uh, Melchizedek on Sunday, there's the war with the kings um, where, where Abraham is fighting the different kings. And again, that term kings would be more uh, mayors or, or, again, not like a, a monarch like we would think today. So, so Ben-Hadad, the king of Damascus, Syria, which is still there today, the oldest, they say that um, Damascus is the oldest inhabited city in the world. I think the oldest city in the world is Jericho, but the oldest inhabited city in the world continuously is Damascus, Syria. Now, what's what's um, interesting for us as Bible students about Damascus, Syria? Why do we as Christians keep our eyes on Damascus, Syria? It's been a while since I've done a prophecy update, so I should probably means I'm due for another one. Okay, the reason why, real quick, just do this. Hold your finger there. You guys got to see this total side note. But because nobody had the answer, we're going to take a quick, quick right. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 17. Find Isaiah 17. Okay, if you got to the Psalms, keep going. If you get to Jeremiah, back up. Psalm 17, 1. I'm sorry, Isaiah 17, 1. Isaiah 17, 1. Now, I think this is important for you to keep your eyes on and to know. Um, and, and I'll say just, maybe I don't need to say this. Maybe you guys would just know this. Um, not everybody would agree with, with my theological the, uh, position or, or everything that I say. It doesn't mean that it's bond, right? There are those you could talk to that would disagree, and they would say that this, this prophecy has been fulfilled in the past. Now, I personally can't see that at all, and, and there's many people that believe that this is the key, like um, um, Amir Safadi, who's, who's a, kind of a, a leader in biblical prophecy of our day. He's the guy who has the Behold Israel um, ministry and um, you should, if you do Twitter, follow Amir Safadi on Twitter. He's constantly tweeting updates um, on Israel, on the Holy Land, on the wars, on the progress, and um, he's great to follow on Facebook and other places as well. For Behold Israel is is the tag for his ministry, and you could probably find him on Twitter and Facebook and um, on uh, with that tag. But really quickly, Isaiah seventeen one says, "Behold, what Damascus will cease from being a city." And it will be a ruinous heap. So the Bible prophesies that the city of Damascus, which is current Damascus, Syria, 
Damascus, the same city here in 1 Kings chapter 20 that Ben-Hadad is, is the king of, that Damascus will cease from being a city. Not only will it cease from being a city, but that it will become a ruinous heap. So one of the, one of the things that we look for in biblical prophecy um, that's yet future, that's at the doorstep, it's something that we're daily keeping an eye on because of the war with Iran and Russia and Syria um, um, and the, the Kurdish forces that are taking place right now in Syria. Now, it's died down a little bit. But we were heavily talking about this just a year ago, a year and a half ago, because there was two million Syrians that have been displaced from Syria. There's drone footage. I showed it on a Sunday morning about two years ago in a prophecy update. There's drone footage of a major city in the country of Syria called Homs, Syria, H-O-M-S, Syria, Homs, Syria. It's the second largest city in the country of Syria, Damascus being the largest. And there's a drone footage flying over it. Now, you go back, and you don't have to go back very far. Go back 15 years. You don't even have to go back that far, I don't think. Ten years. And, and if you can find pictures of the city of Homs, Syria, or you could go today and look at pictures of Damascus, and, and, and maybe with some different kind of style, but when you look at, at Damascus, Syria, the city today, or, or, or a few years ago, it, it was one of the most, most metropolitan, populated, successful, thriving cities in the world. It was, it was Tokyo. It was New York City. It was, you know, it was all of that. And, and it was successful, and it was thriving, and the, the lights, and the cars, and the, I mean, it was just a really happening, normal, big, big city, Damascus, Syria. Homs, Homs would have been no different. There's a drone footage, recent drone footage, and it's flying over Homs, Syria. If, if Isaiah 17.1 said that Homs would become, uh, Homs as a city would cease to exist, it would become a ruinous heap, that scripture would be fulfilled today, because now Homs is completely destroyed second largest city in Syria. Mind-blowing to watch this drone footage of what this city looks. It looks like a hundred-year-old destruction ruinous ruins that are a hundred years old. Those ruins are less than five years old. Five years ago, that was, a, that was a thriving city. And you can't even wrap your mind around it until you go back and you look at pictures of what was happening and what the city looked like not that long ago. Well, well, well Damascus is still there. Um, uh, Bashar al-Assad still has his, his, his capital in Damascus, and there still is a stronghold in Damascus that they're, that they're, um, they're as yet destroyed. Parts of Damascus in the, in the current war that's going on today are being destroyed. Just this week, just this week, um, Israel was bombing Iranian targets in southern Damascus. And again, that makes the news, and it makes my news real, because I'm constantly keeping my eyes on Damascus. The day that, 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 that we read or that we see the drone flying over Damascus, and it looks like what Homs looks like today, then, then the Isaiah 17.1 is fulfilled, and it's very possible that that's going to coincide with the Ezekiel 36, 37, 38 prophecies um, of the rapture, the end time scenario, getting ready to kick off. So we keep our eyes on Damascus, Syria, um, for that reason. Okay? And so again, like I said, Israel is there just this week. And, 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 you know, Iran has been using Syria as a proxy. And this is the other thing that I share, and we'll see this. Now, I don't know um, if we're going to do this part or not because it takes like four hours out of our day to complete it. So we may just go up to the part and not completely do it. But if you go all the way up to the top of the Golan Heights, and when you get up to the top of the Golan Heights in Israel, it's the farthest um, 
north, I believe, that we go on the tour. And when, you, when, you, when you're in Damascus, I'm sorry, in the Golan Heights, in the top, in the northern part of Israel, you literally, literally, if you stand on a chair, you can see cars driving in, in Damascus, Syria. You're 50 miles standing in, 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 in Israel. You're 50 miles from Damascus, and you can literally see the, the lights of cars driving on the streets in Damascus. When we go there, um, sometimes there's like um, bombs going off or gunfire or something happening, and, and it's part of the current war that's going on or the, or the fighting that's there, and the guide always does the same thing. So I won't tell him that I told you guys, but he'll say, oh, that's training exercises. Don't worry. You know, we're just, they're doing training exercises over there because people freak out and, and there's really no reason to, but so he'll say, oh, it's just some training. Uh, no, it's not training exercises. That's Syria and there's something going on there, but Iran is using um, the borders and trying to. So Israel is just, Israel just owns them. They're so on top of them. Like they, 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 they're in the, in the streets of Iran, their, their generals are getting gunned down by unknown gunmen in the streets of Iran, you know, is Israeli operatives and different things, but they're, uh, they're attacking these, these, any forward stuff, anything Iran tries to move or do in Syria, Israel knows that it's a guys and that they're destroying it. All right. That was a lot. One word in verse chapter 20, verse one. Verse 2 says, And he sent messengers to the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and he said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. So Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, he sends word to Ahab, and he says, Listen, I'm going to take everything that's yours, your gold, your silver. And he said, Your loveliest wives. What does that mean? He was going to leave the ugly, fat wives at home. He said, I'm only taking the loveliest wives and the children, they're mine, the bad kids and the ugly wives, I'm not taking them. And the king of Israel answered in verse 4 and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, and all that I have are yours. And then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad again, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever it pl- is pleasant in your eyes, they will put in their, in their hands and take it. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land, and he said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent for me, my wives, my children, my silver, my gold, and I didn't deny him. And then all the elders of Israel and the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that you sent for your servants the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought word back to him. So he said to Ben, hey, dad, he sent word back. He said, okay, you know, you've asked too much. I, I tried to work with you and I tried to give you that, but, but it's just, it's too much now. I can't do it. And then Ben, hey, dad, in verse 10, sent to him and said, the gods, little G, right? Do so to me and more also, if enough dust is left for, of Samaria, for a handful for each of the people who follow me. Where's Samaria? Samaria is in northern Israel. That's, that's the north part of the northern kingdom where, where um, um, Ahab was the king over. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. That's like him sending back word and telling Ben-Hadad, Well, you better pack a lunch. It's going to be a while. Or saying, Don't count your chickens before they hatch, buddy. You know, so now they're bantering a little bit. And it happens when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he had the kings were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. So he's drunk. 
him and his, his kings are hanging out. They're, they're not real worried. And, you know, we actually see this narrative in the Bible several times. We see it in the book of Daniel um, with Belteshazzar where he and his, and his men are drinking and they're partying and they're taking the vessels of the temple and, and the writing shows up on the wall. And so here we see Ben-Hadad and his men. They're drunk. Um, they're having this exchange. And so obviously, you know, one of the prohibitions of, of getting drunk is that your, your inhibitions um, go down when you've been drinking. And you do things that you normally wouldn't do, and, and you make some foolish decisions. I think probably pretty simple wisdom is we shouldn't be making war decisions while we're drunk. And suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this grateful multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. You notice that Lord is what? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? We know that when we see that in the Old Testament, that's the Tetragrammaton, the, the name of the Lord, um, Jehovah, Yahweh. We've lost the pronunciation over the times, but we know it's the, it's the letters Y-H-V-H. We just don't know how it's pronounced. So Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the province. And then he said, who will set the, the battle in order? And he answered, you will. What? So God shows up to Ahab and God gives Ahab in this situation absolute favor and you think to yourselves why in the world would God show favor to this wicked king and his wicked bride but you know oftentimes it's it it also right it doesn't just affect Ahab it affects the people of Israel that God loves and Ahab himself and God is a gracious God and a merciful God and all those things are in play but, but in a big picture, God loves the people, and, and through um, Ahab, he, he, you know, he, in order to bless the people, Ahab's going to be a part of that. The Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? And, and, and David, he got frustrated with this, and he said, Lord, why do, the, why do the wicked prosper? You know, sometimes in our lives, the Bible says there's a concept that we watch people who do things apart from God's will, and they're wicked, and they're evil, and they're, they're, they don't have no desire to serve God. And and, and seemingly they prosper and they do well. They make good business decisions. Their businesses are making money. And and you look at them and you get frustrated and you say, Lord, I'm trying to serve you and I'm struggling. And they have nothing to do with you and they're prospering. And and David recognized this. And and David got a little frustrated with it, you know, and he asked the Lord the same question. You know, and the Lord showed him the end. And then he encouraged him to press on that, that in the end there would be justice. And, 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 and yet that it would seem that they're, that they're prospering, but in the long run, they're not going to prosper and to continue to do what's right. And David said, I'd rather um, be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents with the wicked. But, but yes, we understand that. And for Ahab here, he reigns. You know, there's sometimes where, you know, I ask God to, on a Sunday morning or when I'm preaching, I get, I get another opportunity to go in September. I, have a, I got a couple um, speaking engagements that I've invited to do. So I encourage you guys or ask you guys again to pray for those. Um, but, you know, part of the, the thing is if, 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 if I go and, you know, I get to preach to, to you know, uh, in this one, it's a, it's a men's group, 300 men, and, um, you know, for God to show up and really change some lives. And, and I, got, I went once before and, um, and, and, you know, like 40, 50 guys came and responded and, and, and were in tears. And God really moved them with the message. And, you know, and, and that's not really just about me. It's not, you know, because I was great or good. And oftentimes when I'm praying, when I got to preach, you know, I want to get out of the way. And I say, God, bless this message and, and make it work and make and use it. But not because of me, not because I deserve it, but because you love the people that are going to receive it. 
And God will use me sometimes, not because I deserve it, but because he loves you. And, and God will bless the message, and God will bless the service, and it's not even about those that are performing. It's, it's because God wants to touch your hearts, and so even though I don't deserve it, it's, it's not like I had to be perfect in this week or any week or live a perfect life because I live the farthest thing from a perfect life. I struggle like, like anybody. I have ups and downs and good days and bad days and, you know, and, and, and struggle with, with, with my own struggles. But, but God uses me anyways, and God uses me in spite of me, and God uses me because he loves you. And because he wants to speak to you. And so, um, you know, and that's always my prayer too. God, speak because you love these people, not because I deserve it. And so here, um, God is just going to bless the nation of Israel. And, and Ahab is a part of that. And then in verse 15, and then he mustered the young leaders in the provinces who were there, 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, the children of Israel, 7,000. They went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk in the command post. And the young elders in the provinces went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol. And they told him, saying, men are coming out of Samaria. And he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. But if they have come out for war, take them alive. <laughs> what an idiot. He's so drunk. He, he can't even decide what he wants to do. It doesn't make any sense, right? He's like, yeah, take him alive or take him alive. So he's drunk and he, he's not making any sense here. And he wants, But he wants him alive. He's got that much figured out. And then the young, the young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them. And each one killed his, killed his man. So the Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. And then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the, the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go, strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year of the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. So you, you know that song, uh, God is the God of the hills and the valleys? God is the God of the hills and the valleys. Now, this is the world, right? And I think this is a concept that, that we see in the world today. You know, the Bible says in the book of Revelations, and yet they did not repent, and yet they did not repent. You'll find that, you'll find that statement repeated many times through the book of Revelation, and yet they did not repent. Great calamities. A third of the ocean died. The meteors are falling from the sky, and yet they did not repent. Yet they did not repent. All of these wonderful, amazing, supernatural things are happening. You think they would repent, that they would finally realize that there's a God in heaven who is bringing this and doing this, and yet they won't repent. And the world reacts in such strange ways. And so here the Syrian army, rather than just say, you know, their God is great and that's why we lost, they said, oh, no, 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 their God. And, and, and even the ideas they have about God, their God is the God of the hills. And we fought this battle in the hills and, we, and they won. But our gods are the gods of the valley, and we're, our gods will defeat their gods in the valley. Let's, let's have this battle again, but this time let's just do it in the valley. So this is their, maybe they were still drunk, sounds like, huh? This was their, uh, their, their, their concept. And so it says, so, so do this thing, dismiss the king, each from his position, and put captains in their places. And you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horses and horse and chariot for chariot. And it will... And then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voices and did so. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered up the Syrians and went up to attack Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered up and given provisions, and they went against them. And now the children of Israel encamped before the 
them like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. So the Syrians were way outnumbering the, the nation of Israel. And the man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said the Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. So God took exception to what they said. Why? I don't know. You have to ask God when you see him. But he didn't like that, and he said, you know, I think he was going to do it anyway. He already had promised the victory, but he's like, I'm going to show them, and I'm going to give testimony to the world that I'm not only the God of the hills, but I'm also the, I'm not only the God of the of the hills i'm also the god of the valleys and and our god is the god of the hills and the valleys who sings that song torn wells so good such a good song i I should try to sing it um when i uh when i first got saved i mean first got saved i was probably still high when i got saved but um when i first became a christian like in the first couple of months maybe of being a christian um, and, and, and I, I don't know, this is kind of hard to tell this story. I've probably never told this story before, so don't, don't tell anybody. Um, we'll, we'll block this from the, from the tape, but true story. I, um, I, I was, I was praying and I was spending time with God and God at a couple times in my life as a new believer, he had, he done, he, he had done something. He had done something. Is that, is that, no. Okay. He did something in my life that was different that he's never done again, but I was young. I didn't know the Bible. I was just learning to know God. And I really think that God did a few things in that season that were supernatural to help me get to where I needed to be, to build the bridge that I needed to get so that my faith was more dependent upon truth and upon the word of God. And, and you know, you guys probably got these testimonies of, of things that God did when you were first coming to Jesus. Like, you know, you, you drove up in, in a stoplight and the bumper sticker on the car in front of you was the message that, that just happened to be that bumper sticker or something weird like that. But anyways, I, um, I was praying and I was worshiping and I was saying the word hallelujah, hallelujah. And when I got to the loo part, hallelujah, um, the, the spirit of God like shook my vocal cords and it was super like soulful and spiritual and it was, but it was coming from my soul, not from my voice. And, and literally it was just, it was like a, like a Holy Spirit moment. You know, see, I told you why I don't tell this story, right? You guys are looking at me like, oh, but this is a true story. And I did, and I sang this this thing alone, you know, and, and it was like, and then my voice was, was doing good, and um, it was coming from my soul, and the Holy Spirit had come upon me. And it was like one of those things nobody ever take from me. Like the Holy Spirit showed up that day, and for whatever reason, he gave me a little Holy Spirit moment, and he touched me, and I had this experience. Well, brand new believer, right? Just nobody in my family is Christian. I'm still living in the house that I grew up in in Lawndale. I hadn't moved yet to Hammett. And so I go and I tell everybody, I know what God's called me to do. God's called me to be a singer. <laughs> That's why I never told anybody that story. <laughs> oh, so embarrassing. So that's how I learned humility. No. And I couldn't. All right. So um, God, God is doing something um, kind of supernatural here. And he says, okay, because you're the God of the hills and the valleys, I'm going to get them. Verse 29. And they camped opposite each other for seven days. <clears throat> so it was that. On the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the children of Israel killed, wow, 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. This is history. This is not make-believe. This is not, this is real God history. God can't exaggerate. He can't lie. 100,000 men died that day. And so Israel had a great, great slaughter of the, of the Syrians, 
And, and there's going to be another 27,000 on that day that's going to die here coming up. So 127,000 were killed that day. But that's a lot, man. That's a lot of deaths in one day in a, in a battle. But the rest fled to Aphek and to the city, and a wall fell on 27,000 men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city of the inner chamber. So that some of them that ran... And God had other plans for them. They hid underneath this, this, this city wall. A bunch of soldiers ran up against the wall. The wall fell over, killed them all. So God just did all, went all Jericho on them and, and took out the other 27,000 that were, that were uh, making fun of him. And it says in verse um, 31, it says, Then his servants said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful. Please let us put sackcloth around our waist, ropes around our heads, and go out to the kings of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. And so they wore sackcloth around their waist and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, he, 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 Is he still alive? He is my brother. So this is Ahab's reaction. Now, you wouldn't expect Ahab to do anything wise or smart, right? He's Ahab. He's just not, he's just not a good king. And so Ben-Hadad, who already, do you remember the beginning of the story? Ben-Hadad sends him messages. I'm going to come and take your most loveliest wives. I'm going to take your children. I'm going to take your gold and your silver. And, and he's like, okay, just come get it. And then he keeps making requests. And he says, I'm going to send the servants. And they're going to come and just take everything they want out of your houses. And finally Ben-Hadad, or Ahab says, okay, Ben-Hadad, that's enough. I can't, can't allow that. And then by the mercy of God, this prophet shows up and tells Ahab, have courage. God's going to give you this victory. And so only because God did something supernatural and was going to give him the victory, did Ahab even have the courage to go and and defeat King Ahab. Then God brings about this amazing victory. And Ben-Hadad runs and hides. And and then he sends message to Ahab. And and it's like Ahab would have been like almost starstruck or something. Like, oh, he is my brother. That's what, that's what Ahab says about, about Ben-Hadad. Like, he's my friend. I understand. I should have mercy on him. And, 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 and King Ahab would not have been globally, nationally a, a, a nobody, but Ben-Hadad would have been on the big scale of things. He was the king of a big city and of a huge army, and he would have been well-known. He would have been in the TVs and in the newspapers and, 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 and well-respected. And, and Ahab would have just been a little guy in Israel, in the northern ten tribes of Israel. And so for whatever reason, he just he's just acting foolishly. And again, maybe he's starstruck by who Ben-Hadad is, and we've got to be careful for that. And he says, okay, yeah, you're my brother. What do you mean he's your brother? He wasn't your brother a week ago when he was going to take your loveliest wives and your children. And now all of a sudden he's your brother? Okay. And now when men were watching closely to whether the sign mercy came upon him, and they quickly gasped at his word and said, your brother Ben-Hadad. So he said, go bring him. And Ben-Hadad came, Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your fathers I will restore to you and may set up marketplaces for you in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and he sent him away. So um, in this next part, 35 through 43, I'll just tell you what happens really quick. Um, do you remember when Nathan came to David and, um, you know, he said there was a man in your kingdom and he, he had a bunch of sheep and he went and he killed his neighbor's one little ewe lamb. What do you want to do with this guy, David? And David said, oh, that man shall surely die. And David pronounced the judgment on himself. And Nathan said, David, you are that man. But because of the grace of God, 
I'm not going to carry, God's not going to carry out that sentence of death that you just pronounced on this other guy. Well, God sets up this, um, we should just read it really quick. It's kind of, it's kind of good. Um, there's a couple things in there. Um, we'll try to go quick through because I do want to finish the book tonight. We got like 10 minutes left. Now, a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his neighbor, by the word of the Lord, strike me please. And the man refused to strike him. And then he said, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. Now that's some old Testament craziness, right? It is what it is. Uh, the, the lion found him and ate him. We, we're going to get to a part in the story where a bunch of youths um, are making fun of Elisha and they call him, you old bald head, you baldy, 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 baldy. And, and, and bears come out of the woods and maul the youth and kill him for making fun of the man of the Lord. Now, that's just some kind of funny, I don't know, funny. It's just some different Old Testament stuff. But here, the man of God, there is a lesson, right? That, and, and what the occasion was, which what the guy, the, the prophet told the guy to do was to punch him in the face. And the guy's like, I'm not going to punch you in the face. And he said, okay, no lion's going to eat you. Because the Lord had told him to do it, he should have done it. And it doesn't matter what God tells you to do and what the direction is. And I don't think today God's telling us to go punch people in the face. But God may give you an instruction to um, and not, you know, and again, the Old Testament stories that we have were literal physical battles. The New Testament equivalent that you and I face are are more on the side of spiritual. So you may have to punch a problem in the face um, symbolically. You may have something in your life that that you have to deal with. And it's hard. And it's like having to punch somebody in the face and you don't want to do it. Maybe there's an issue oftentimes in ministry or church where, you know, we have to deal with something. We have to deal with somebody as a punch in the face. But the deal is if you don't do what God's told you to do, even though it's hard, there's consequences. And and, and there was consequences for this guy, not because he didn't punch the guy in the face. That's not why the lion ate him. The reason why the lion ate him was because he was disobedient to what God told him to do in his life. And, And in your life and in my life, no matter what God tells you, that, that there needs to be consequences. You know, I think of the tribe of, of Levi. Do you realize that the tribe of Levi is the priestly tribe in Israel? They're the ones assigned to the temple, and, and, and of the 12 tribes, they're the ones that God picked. When did the tribe of Levi become the priestly tribe? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel had how many sons? 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 boys grew up together. They didn't like Joseph. They threw him in a hole. Now, when Levi was 15 years old, he wasn't a tribe of Israel yet, and he wasn't the, 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 the priestly tribe, but eventually the descendants that came from Levi, God chose. And the reason why God chose them was because there was an incident where God called out to the tribes to go and, and deal discipline with another tribe in Israel and to kill some of the men, and none of the tribes wanted to do it. But the tribe of Levi and the men of the tribe of Levi, and because it was in-house discipline, they stepped up because God told them to do it. It was a hard thing to do. It was brothers that they were having to discipline. But the tribe of Levi said, we'll be obedient. We'll do what the Lord tells us to do. And the tribe of Levi went and carried out the judgment that God placed upon another tribe in Israel. And from that point forward, God announces, and you see where, where, where God chooses the tribe of Levi to become the priestly And so then um, in verse 37, it says, and he found another man. And he said, strike me. (laughs) Did he tease him about the lion? Like, hey, man, you might want to think about this. 
So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. And the prophet departed, and he waited for the king by the road, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And when the king passed by, he cried out to the king, and he said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle. And there was a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay with a talent of silver. And while your servant was busy here and, here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man who I appointed to utter destruction. Therefore, you, your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his household and displeased and came to Samaria. So do you guys follow that? The man gave that little Nathan kind of story. He, he came and he said, uh, I, I was in the battle and, and, and somebody came and delivered me a guy and said, hey, you watch him and don't let him out of your sight or it's your life or his life. And the guy left and the guy came back. And while I was busy, I, the, my prisoner got away. What should happen? And, and, and um, Ahab said, you should pay your life for that guy's life. And he said, well, actually, I'm not the guy in the story. You're the guy in the story and you let King Ben Hadad go, and now God's going to require your life in, in exchange for his life. And chapter 21, and it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel. Now, I really do got to move on, you guys, because I want to catch a few things. Um, so so the Nabal, just let me just tell you what happens in chapter 21. Nabal, um, again, this is in um, the area of Mount Carmel. It's in the Megiddo Valley, the one I talked about already. Beautiful beautiful area of Israel because you can see forever. You can see to the Mediterranean Sea. You can see, you know, forever to the south and just beautiful views of all of Israel from there on Mount Carmel in this area. And this is where, and we'll see parts of it, this is where King Ahab had his palace there in the north of Israel. And there was a guy named Nabal who had a property near there and Ahab wanted it for a vineyard, for a garden. And so he comes to Nabal and he says, I want to buy your property because I want to build a garden for myself. And, and um, he says, if it's money you want, if it's whatever, don't hold back. I'll, I'll give you what you need. Just tell me what you want. And, and, and Nabal says, I'm not going to sell you my property. It's against the law of Moses. Would you? The property was to remain within your household forever. And you weren't allowed to, to change it like that. And if, if, you, you know, if you lost it in a bed or you lost it because of bad debt, it was only 50 years that it could stay out of your family at max. Because in the year of Jubilee, everything went back to the rightful owners. But Nabal says, no, I'm not going to sell it to you. So um, um, Ahab goes home, and he's sitting on the couch, and, and he's white, whining and weeping and acting like a little girl. And Jezebel comes walking in the living room, and she says, Ahab, what's going on? Why are you upset? I wanted Nabal's property, and he wouldn't give it to me. So he's whining, he's crying, because a little poor baby can't have this piece of property for his garden. So Jezebel, on her own, she takes up, she takes up and she says, you're the king of Israel, demand it. And he's like, eh, nah, nah, whatever. So, so she, she goes and she finds and, and she says, I want you to have a dinner in Nabal's honor. And, and, I, and I want you to put some scoundrels, some men next to him, and, and I want these men to falsely testify against Nabal that 
um, he's committing blasphemy, and I want you to have him killed. So that's exactly what they do. Jezebel sets it up. They have a dinner. Nabal's there. They put two scoundrels next to him. Um, They lie, and they say, Nabal's committing blasphemy, and this and that. And the men go out, and under the witness of two, they stone Nabal to death. Jezebel comes home, and she says to Nabal, or she says to her husband, uh, what's his name? What's his name? Come on, y'all. Write it down if you don't remember. Ahab. And Ahab, you know, you would think like he would have maybe had a thought like, honey, that's not exactly what I had in mind. Like, you're a wicked, you know what. (laughs) But he didn't. He was like, he got all giddy and he goes and he takes the property. And he starts to plant his garden on Nabal's property. He just followed right along. Now, look at Revelation real quick. And we'll just have to end here, you guys. I guess we'll have to cover uh, uh, 21. We'll we'll couple just the events of 22. There's a couple things there I want to hit before we get into next week, but we do got to be done. But look with me real quick at Revelation chapter 2. Now, I've talked about her before, but you know what's what's fascinating to me is that Jesus capitalizes on this in Revelation 2 to the letter to the angel of Thyatira in verse 18. Now, this is the corrupt church. Now, I, I don't exactly think I can be dogmatic or, or, or positive on this, but I will say there are some scholarly um, views that the church of Thyatira and the things that, that, that are happening that Jesus is talking about would most likely coincide with the Catholic church. Now, maybe not the, the local Catholic church in our neighborhood today, but really if we're being honest, and, and you could say the same thing about the Christian church as well, you know, the, the, the crusaders, um, you know, everything they did in the name of the Christian church and the name of Jesus and Protestantism was, was foul. But, but the church, um, the Catholic church, without a doubt, had dark ages. And, and I don't know if that stat is still true today, but it wasn't long ago when I heard the stat, when I know it was true, I'd have to look it up again today. But if the Catholic church were a country, it would be like the third wealthiest country in the world. And, and, and through the dark ages and the Inquisition and, and, and for a thousand years, the popes and, the, and, and the, the diocese and the Catholic Church absolutely monopolized and dominated the world. They, they owned more property. You know all of the fancy works of art, Da Vinci and Van Gogh, and, and some of the most valuable, precious pieces of art on planet Earth today are owned by the Catholic Church. They, they own properties and palaces and, and castles and you name it. And part of the, the thing that was taking place during the Inquisition is, you know, lots of, lots, lots of different Catholic practices. They had great ways to raise money and wealth. And, and it wasn't by accident that they became the, you know, the wealthiest entity on planet Earth and, and controlled and had so much power for so many years over, over everything, over the whole known world. Well, in Lima, and you could still go today, um, in Lima, Peru, during the, the Black uh, um, Ages, the Inquisition, one of the things they would do, well, and we know, right, that they, if people wanted to have the Bible in their own language and, and they would torture and kill them, they wouldn't let it, they would chain the Bible to the pulpit for, for lots of years. It was only written in Latin. Common people couldn't read Latin. But during the Inquisition and, and in a church, particular church in Lima, in the basement, they would use torture. And they would, they would literally torture people in the church to get them to confess to sins. And then when they did, they would seize their possessions and their properties. And then after they tortured people and beat them, they would take them to trial. And in this particular church in Lima, they had a life-size statue of Jesus that was, um, that was real looking. 
and they would, they would ask the statue if the person was guilty of blasphemy. And the statue would either shake its head yes or no. And that's, that's what would decide. Think I'm crazy? It's true. Look it up. They, that, that's what would decide whether the person was innocent or guilty. Well, of course, one of their guys was behind the statue with a little pole shaking the head of Jesus up and down. And so is the person guilty? And then Jesus, the statue would go. The guy behind the thing would be going. And then they would take the person out and they would kill him. They would seize their property and, and, and became very wealthy. Now look what Jesus says about this practice of this Jezebel spirit. And we also saw it there in Kings. But he says, and to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write, these things says the son of God, who has eyes like the flame of fire and has feet like brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, your patience. And, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. Good stuff coming out of this church in the area of works. Hospitals, schools, churches, benevolence, homeless shelters, um, tons and tons and tons. And that is very true of, of, of that, that denomination. And he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because, all, because, all, uh, because you allow that woman Jezebel, somebody said Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one according to your works. And so we see here where, where Jesus um, uses this Jezebel spirit as an example. Now, that's the same Jezebel that we're reading about in Kings that's Ahab's wife. And Jezebel was a wicked woman. She would devise plans to trick people and scam people and, and commit sexual immorality and idolatry and follow other gods. And Amen? All right, we are so out of time. Let's stand. Father God, we come before you. And Jesus, we thank you so much for uh, these stories. And Lord, they are fascinating. And they are history, Lord. But there's so much in them. And, and the way that you tell these stories with the details that you choose to put in there, Lord, they give us so much, God, and they, and they are um, fun and interesting, and, and Lord, we can draw so much out of them, God. And so, Father, we thank you for these stories of the Old Testament, and um, Lord, how they even apply to our lives today, God. And, and Lord, how we, we see the, 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 the kings of Israel, some good and some bad. And, and Lord, um, whether, whether things were going good in Israel usually depended on who the king was and how his leadership was. And so, Father, we pray for in our country, we pray for good leadership. We pray, Lord, that you continue to raise up men and women that, um, that fear you, God, and, and, and want to make laws that, that honor your word, Lord. And, Father, we, we give you glory and honor. We pray for uh, our own county, Tooele County, Lord, that you'd help us to be a lighthouse and make a difference in this place. We pray for uh, um, invitations these next couple of weeks. And, um, Lord, for church growth time of the year in the fall as September comes around, God, that we'd be ready for that. And that, Lord, we will love and serve those that you bring. And, God, I pray again a healing and a blessing over each person that's in here today, Lord. May you bless them and keep them. May you, may you shine your face upon them, lift up your countenance upon them, and give them peace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Go grab your kids, please. Come back if you want.